0: Hello, and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies. Old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is Season 3, Episode 6, and today we are going back 100 years and we are talking about Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood from 1922. As always, my name is Zachary Orts, I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey Matty, how are you doing? Doing pretty good, how about you? Good, I'm excited to talk to you about this one. You've been doing a bit of a centennial yourself. This is capping off five movies from 100 years ago for you, right?
1: For sure, yeah. My idea behind this is that since 1922, the movies kind of... Cinema starts in the United States around that time period. You could only start doing this 100-year re- retrospective for multiple films in a year, starting with kind of 1917-ish going forward. Yeah. So, you know, I decided this year to to start up going back 100 years and watching films from the time period. And it's been a lot of fun and it was exciting to watch this one to to round out the five films for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we that I guess that segues us pretty well into personal history here neither one of us had seen this film previously. So why don't you talk a little bit about your experience watching your silent films this year? And did you have previous experience with silent films before that?
1: Yeah, I had a little bit of experience with silent films before this. Not a lot. Things like some Charlie Chaplin films and those kinds of things. So I, I think I'd seen maybe three or four silent films. Before this year, so I've more than doubled the amount that I've watched this year. Mm. But watching the silent films from this year, just it was really uh, a really it changed my perspective on film a lot. There's things that I saw that I just didn't grasp, and uh, I've started to understand the film industry a lot better, both like. The development of the techniques on film, in the camera, uh, all of that kinds mm. of things. But additionally, just the business of filmmaking and understanding those things with a lot more detail. And looking at d- films from different countries as well was really interesting. So seeing how film was kind of developing concurrently between uh, Germany and the U.S. and Great Britain and Russia and those kinds of things was really enlightening so I learned a lot from it and I'm excited to go back and watch more silent films because of this and I've kind of fallen in love with silent films just in general because they they're just such a unique viewing experience and some of these stories are are so well told but then the cinematography is you know, it's not there yet. And so be, seeing mm-hmm. the story that doesn't match up with what we would see on screen nowadays is a really interesting experience.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have just about no experience with silent films. We had watched a few Charlie Chaplin movies or maybe just scenes. Uh, this would have been before high school. So we're talking probably close to 20 years ago at this point maybe a little over 20 years ago and clearly i don't even remember them well enough to know whether or not we watched full movies or whether we were just watching watching shorts and all of that uh what about robin hood how much experience do you have with various robin hood mythologies or various robin hood properties
1: uh a lot um Mm. yeah it's a Though I don't think that's surprising because Robin Hood is, the, I believe, the second most depicted character in cinema behind Sherlock Holmes. And one of my favorite films growing up was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, that mm-hmm. stars Kevin Costner. And not only that, but it was the, the song from that one the that plays over the end credits at the end of the Bryan Adams song, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, was the first like real song that I learned to play on the piano. Um, oh, cool! Yeah. I didn't
0: know that song was used in that movie.
1: Yeah, so it's it was made for that movie. How they used to do, you know, just write pop songs for for movies right, yeah. all the time. So, yeah, so a lot of experience with that. A lot of different Robin Hoods. I watched the Disney animated Robin Hood over and over and over until the tape wore out, literally. And so, yeah, a lot of experience, but nothing this far back in the history.
0: Yeah. And there were, I don't have the full history in front of me, but there were a few Robin Hoods before this. This wasn't the first Robin Hood film venture. So I, I actually, you said it's not that surprising, but I'm pretty sure I have very close to zero experience with Robin Hood. I'm obviously like culturally aware of the Disney cartoon but it was of the Disney movie the animated film but it wasn't one that we owned growing up and I like I think maybe I'd seen some scenes at like friends houses or maybe if we were at a party and the adults were doing something maybe it was something that got got put on there for the kids but I'm not even sure if I've seen it all the way through and I definitely haven't seen any of the live action films sort of since I became interested in like action and blockbuster movies. I don't know that there's been a big Robin Hood film in the last decade. Has there?
1: There's been two or um, decade
0: and a half. Oh, have there? Were yeah. they good?
1: Um they were uh so I've only seen one of them. They were not very well reviewed critically. Okay. One that of them was it, russell crowe's robin hood which stars oh yeah well it has russell crowe and he does an all right job but the the really nice thing about that one is it has oscar isaac in it and he plays prince john i believe uh and he's phenomenal Mm. so there's there's a lot of good performances in it it wasn't a great film but i i i liked it it was pretty good and then there's a guy Ritchie version that's like very over the top that came out recently. And it was uh, the response was very divided on it. So a lot of people hated it. A lot of people loved it. And I haven't ever gone gotten, gotten around to watching it yet.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think the actual closest thing I have to seeing something Robin Hood is there was that one Robin Hood episode of Doctor Who maybe four seasons ago. And I think that's it. I think that's all I've seen. Yeah, I was thinking of exactly that when I was seeing this
1: movie. I was thinking of exactly that while while I was watching it. That that I remembered that you had seen
0: that Doctor Who episode for sure. Yeah, so this was pretty interesting to see see this mythology here. So why don't we get into it and talk a little bit about 1922? I have I have an advantage that you don't have here, which is that I have a podcast host who teaches this time period <laughs> whereas you just have me so yeah it's, I, uh, I pulled a few things but why don't you sort of go off here and i'll chime in as as needed
1: uh, i'm gonna have to limit myself because i teach an entire you know uh nine week course on the throwing 20s and the great gatsby and modernism and all that mm-hmm. stuff so but some small things here the the big things that were going on is prohibition was one of the big things in the united states uh which is when the 18th amendment was passed in 1920 which uh, prohibited the sale of alcohol uh within the united <laughs> states and was roundly considered a disaster um and led to the repeal a couple of amendments later i can't remember the the number because Everybody just kept drinking alcohol anyways. They just were doing it illegally. And you had the rise of organized crime on account of this. Then the other big thing was just the Roaring Twenties. The time period was a big change in a lot of social mores. And there was a lot of financial booms going on. And so there were a lot of cultural changes because of that. The 19th Amendment, which in the United States gave women the right to vote, white women the right to vote. And led to, in, as well as the invention of several kinds of birth control, led to this empowerment of women and women's sexuality that didn't exist beforehand. So there was a big change in perspectives there. And it was also the interwar period, period in between World War One and World War Two. So you have a lot of tension in the political things that were going on at the time period you have the rise in worldwide fascism going on at that time period as well as the rise of worldwide communism and the conflicts that were going on so those are the overarching things from the time period. For example, with the USSR, you have Vladimir Lenin points Joseph Stalin as the secretary of the Russian Communist Party in April 3rd. And then it is in December 20th that the USSR is actually formally formed and becomes an actual thing. So that's some of the big stuff. Um, I don't know what other things you you were finding.
0: Uh, no, I, I mostly was thinking about sort of how the rise in technology at the time and how our arts were evolving. So as you had said, like we really were only five, five or six years into cinema, yeah. modern cinema. And in fact, this film is the very first Hollywood opening of all time. It just yeah. had never never happened before this. And this year was You had pulled that on June 14th of this year, President Warren Harding was the first U.S. president to make a radio broadcast. And I thought that was cool. But I was also pretty surprised that it was only, what, uh, four months before that, that the first radio even appeared in the White House. So February 8th. Yeah. And... I thought that was pretty cool that they adopted that technology pretty quickly. Like, I, I definitely would have guessed that there would have been a lot more skepticism and, I don't know, worry about, who knows, what, whatever moral panics you can create about doing a broadcast on the radio, you know, <laughs> yeah. the same way we freaked out when uh, Obama got a Twitter or whatever.
1: Yeah, I mean, people did freak out at the time period. So, you know, it's it it's easy for us to look nowadays and think that we're in a special unique time period where nothing mm-hmm. everything that's happened has never happened before, but that's not the case. And uh, people did have these moral panics all the time about movies and radio, the radio going into the White House and all of those kinds of things.
0: Yes, I take your point. I said moral panic, but what I really meant was concern from the White House over that moral panic yeah. that would make them not want to do that but they sort of didn't care and blazed ahead anyway or they just weren't aware of the moral panic that would have happened which i guess to your point is exactly what has happened with current presidencies you know the as you said obama still tweeted and (laughs) so yeah yeah for sure yeah yeah. Oh, and then, of course, we, we've said it on the podcast before, but we are still five years out from talkies. So we get this really, what, 10 year period where there's where we get silent films and then the, and technology is just going to advance irreparably in 10 years and basically leave them all in the dust.
1: Yeah, it completely shifts the landscape of film, which is coming down the down the road. But this is kind of the peak of silent cinema right here mm-hmm. with, with Robin Hood. I guess you have Charlie Chaplin he makes like all of his stuff and really hits some of his biggest, most popular films in the time leading up to right before the talkies get introduced. But at this time, it just seemed like it was never-ending just you know, uh, success going on in the future for forever. Uh, from, from their perspective, there was, you know, no doubt that they'd be making these silent films for, for, you know, for forever.
0: Yeah. And I can't really think of any other cinematic innovation that flips a switch so much as adding, sound does i mean adding color certainly yeah the, does as the well. other big one
1: is television
0: television yeah, yeah. Si- uh,
1: adding sound and adding television are the two biggest revolutions in the in the film industry so yeah it's it's a pretty big deal and you know, there was so much development of the film industry going on in those early years. So before, oh, I don't have the dates off the top of my head, but somewhere around like 1917, most of the films in that time period were made on the East Coast in, you know, the big cities on the East Coast. But one of the things that they mm-hmm. were doing here in the early 20s was they moved out to Hollywood to make films because you can film there all year long and
0: oh interesting I didn't realize that was why they had done that
1: yeah so you can just go because the weather is good so they moved out to Hollywood and there's other reasons that were that were involved things that had to do with technology and political things and all of that but that's one of the big reasons why they moved out, well, out west. I
0: have to imagine another driving reason is just space like you had land was cheaper and there was more of it that was less built up so you could build The huge lots that you needed to get all of your sets.
1: Yeah, all these massive sets. Well, before that time period, before the Hollywood time period, they were not really building sets very much. Most Mm -hmm. of what they were filming was stuff that was on location with like small kind of minimal sets for rooms and things like that. It wasn't until they move out west into Hollywood that they make the big sets. And this will get into this film in particular is... The big sets come around because of Douglas Fairbanks and Alan Dwan and their films that they were making together. So that's kind of where the idea of these big, gigantic Hollywood sets really comes into play.
0: Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to say specifically about the time period, or should we move on and talk about our personnel here?
1: Yeah, the, the only other thing that I had noted down that I want to just point out is you have the rise of Mussolini and fascism that's going on at the time period, and you have a lot of tension because people are stressed about it. You have Adolf Hitler is Mm -hmm. like raising the Nazi party at the time period as well. And I think some of those anxieties are evident in the film. So I wanted to mention them before we moved on.
0: Yeah. So as we, as we said, this movie had the first Hollywood release ever. It was huge. It, It was like so monumentally big. It had, a budget of just under one million dollars, and did a box office of two and a half million.
1: Yeah, though the there's some dispute over the how much money it made. Uh, um. Mm. So the 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 conservative estimates I saw were two and a half million, and the less conservative estimates were four and a half million. So. You know, oh, interesting. Yeah. We don't keep track of it in the same way as we do now, so nobody's really even sure.
0: And there was one story I read that there was one movie theater that was showing it in a town and the train that went there, they ended up like the train conductor stopped calling out the name of the town when they got there. Because everyone who was riding the train was just going to see Robin Hood, oh, that's amazing. and he they they would just call out and say, oh, "Here's the stop to see Robin Hood." <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's amazing! Wow, yeah, yeah. the The Hollywood premiere that they had for this was at Grauman's Theater, which is like it's like the movie theater when you see so many premieres when they go to that Chinese theater with the mm-hmm. um, that's the one where it debuted and was the first. The first big, you know, Hollywood premiere and you see the pictures and it's just these massive lines all the way down the block to go see this movie.
0: (laughs) That's funny. So let's talk a little bit about Douglas Fairbanks because he is the star of this film. He also produced it and I believe also wrote it, although that was under a different name, under under a pen name. And this is like the middle of the peak of his career. So he started in 1915 in Hollywood. And he, like from the beginning, he was extremely athletic. And you can tell watching this movie, he did all of his own stunts. And sort of the first, the first movie he was in was The Lamb. And the producers that he was working for, the production company that he was working for, they just didn't really understand like, what was so special about him? So, he really was just a workhorse for two years and didn't, you know, he was gradually gaining popularity, but never really, like, fully broke out. He did 16 movies over two years, but then in 1917, he started producing his own movies. And at that point, starts getting a little more artistic control, starts to be able to do the stuff he wants to do, is really a rising star. And then in 1919, this is when everything basically changes. So he and the Mary Pickford, who he was not yet married to, but he was having an affair with, and they eventually both would... They were married to other people and they ended up getting both getting divorces and then remarrying to each other, which was actually a pretty big deal that when they got remarried because of how divorce was viewed in this country at the time, it generally would have been really frowned upon. But because both of them were so beloved, there was a lot of a lot of love for to essentially of America's sweethearts being able to get together yeah
1: Mary Pickford at the time was like the star in Hollywood she was Mm -hmm. she was the biggest name so and you know Douglas Douglas Fairbanks kind of becomes the one of the biggest stars in Hollywood shortly after but it's it's you know it was a big deal and people knew who they were
0: yeah So in nineteen nineteen they start their own production company, the two of them with Charlie Chaplin and D. W. Griffiths. And this is this is going to let Douglas Fairbanks really do these huge crazy things. Like I couldn't find any like extant stories about this, but I have to imagine if he had like tried to tell people what they were planning to do, it had to just seem insane because they were it was just ramping production up so high. And the, the list of action-adventure films they did, starting in 1920, it sort of... Like, the first filmed superhero movie wasn't until Superman or Batman in 1966. But that's based on, like, comic books. But I really was thinking, like, this run of films are basically prototypes for superhero movies like the main characters are superheroes they do superhero things it's just not we don't think of it that way it's not codified in that way because they're not based on comic books
1: yeah for me i always think of zorro as being the the origin of the super the superhero for myself oh yeah because so much of batman in these original detective comics was based directly off of zorro And the way that that character was created, which was, you know, so much of it comes from Douglas Fairbanks's portrayal of Zorro is a lot of what popularized it at the time period.
0: Yeah. And so that was 1920 was Mark of Zorro. And the first Batman comic, I don't have it here, but I think it was 1922. Does that sound right to you?
1: That sounds right to me, um, but I'm not sure. I'll,
0: I'll look it up. Well, while you're talking and correct if, if I'm wrong. So he did. they did Mark of Zorro in 1920, Three Musketeers in 1921, Robin Hood in 1922, uh, Thief of Baghdad in 24, Black Pirate in 26, and Gaucho in 27. And I haven't seen any of his movies from before this, so I don't really have first experience with it, but it really sounds like these are when the action-adventure movie started like it just wasn't something that existed before this
1: yeah he eventually creates the genre out of whole cloth
0: and he he's able to do it because he wants to like he can do all of these things that other actors and other humans couldn't do and couldn't capture on film and i think he just wanted to show that off and really make these grand sweeping stories
1: for sure and he He knew that people... I think he just had a sense that people wanted to see it. And a vision to make it happen. When so many other people just didn't have that kind of grasp. And it was just seeing the idea of film in a different way. Because so much of film was based on theater at the time period. And you just couldn't pull off the same kinds of stunts and things that he was doing in in these films. In the theater. And so... I think he just had this vision that other people weren't able to grasp onto because they were stuck in kind of the transition between these artistic mediums.
0: Yep. And then I think everybody listening can sort of fill in the story after there, like 1927 Gaucho happens and then, <laughs> and then talkies happen in his career. I mean, some of it is he's getting older and he had been hurt a couple times doing various stunts, but also you know, you get older and your body can't do all the same the same stunts that it used to be able to do. And so his career declines pretty, pretty swiftly after that, both due to physical abilities declining and people wanting to see talking films. It's
1: the... If anybody has seen The Sound of Music... Or not The Sound of Music. Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain, yeah. it feels to me like a lot of the archetype of Douglas Fairbanks is is embodied in that character with the it's not meant to be like biographical in any means but but it's the same kind of archetype of character
0: yeah yeah absolutely so that's douglas douglas fairbanks yeah i know you had pulled a did you do you want to say anything else about him um
1: the only thing that i wanted to say is the company that they formed united artists it is hard to overstate uh, how much of an impact they had, th- that production company had on film. There's, if you go through the list, is just film after film after film that were foundational to Hollywood. And I just picked one string where they won three Academy w- Awards in a year for Best Picture, <laughs> um, which was in 1975. They won for One f- Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1976 for Rocky, and 1977 for Annie Hall. And that's just an, that's an example of the kinds of things that United Artists was making over the years, they had such an impact on the film industry, especially as a production company, that the whole idea was to give more empowerment to the artists that were making the films as compared to the studio system. But the Mm -hmm. other thing that goes with it is there's a lot of criticism to go with them because you have D.W. Griffith that is uh, one of these founding members of United Artists and he is responsible for one of the worst... Films and its impact on society, which is Birth of a Nation that gave rise to the KKK and essentially is a Mm -hmm. Ku Klux Klan propaganda film and was like the biggest film, like the very first blockbuster film. And so there's this root in this, you know, the horrible racism and terroristic violence against black people throughout American history that is tied directly to the film industry and this production company. And from all accounts, from, from reading in the history, it seems like the people involved with this film didn't necessarily see eye to eye with D.W. Griffith on those things. But at the same time, they are living in a time that's a Jim Crow era where they're benefiting from things that probably would have supported a lot of the racist laws at the, same, at the time period. And they did work with D.W. Griffith. And seeing the kind of promotion of that kind of violence wasn't a wasn't a deal breaker for them
0: yeah I mean this is you you're gonna see this as you continue to go through your you know your movies from 100 oh, yeah. years ago like the one of the great and horrible things about movies is that like it's not like uh, uh, it's not quite as abstract as a book and it's not as amorphous as a play or musical is where they can, you know, the production changes over over time or different productions can emphasize different things. The movie is really, like, unless someone went back and edited it, it really is a time capsule of when they made it. And uh, <laughs> racism was... Uh, a lot it was roaring along with the 20s right so yeah it's it's going to be present there unfortunately
1: for sure it's it's one of the things that makes these old silent films valuable from a historical context though because just it's difficult to see into the past in the same way as you do when you watch these films but we can continue on talking about the folks involved here
0: sure um and the only other thing i wanted to mention was the star power that douglas fairbanks brought to this oh, film yeah. is why they were able to have the budget that they had and we'll talk a little bit about it in the advice for first-time viewers but the set budget for this was unreal like they, unreal, yeah the, it, it's it's almost impossible to conceive looking at it that I don't know if if any of it is models. Certainly, certainly there's no they didn't save any money by building models. They just built some gigantic sets. They built more than they, a set.
1: They built an entire castle and medieval town for this film. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It's, and then they it's just went and wild. filmed...
1: I mean, they built the whole town and then they just went and filmed there. So
0: Yeah, it's like they, they built themselves a playground and then they filmed a movie on it.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine that these sets were... Reused over and over and over again, just recycled and all kinds of different stuff. Because, in order to get the the money out of these these massive sets that they built, it's incredible.
0: Oh, I did. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, I bet so.
1: But yeah, it's. In fact, I did look to see how much of it was model work and whatnot, and it's basically all sets with a few places where there's map paintings behind them, where they just paint the scenery in behind. Yeah. So where the scenery is going into the distance, and otherwise it's basically sets.
0: Too much of it is just like people moving through through space. Like it seemed impossible for it to be models. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah,
1: it is. It's it's, it's, cool. it's it's incredible.
0: Yeah who who do you, who do you have that you wanted to talk about? Well,
1: the, talking about the sets is a perfect transition to talk to the director. Uh, talk about the director of this film, Alan Dwan, um, who is one of the most important early directors that doesn't get mentioned in the discussion of early directors if that makes sense Mm -hmm. um yeah it does yeah he's one of the founders of the um motion pictures direction directors association and is fact in fact the founding president of the west coast branch that union which becomes the screen directors guild uh is what it is now and he has such a big career that spans such a long time with so many iconic films he's he i didn't even get where he starts because he starts right at the beginning at like 1912 1913 all of that stuff and makes so many films that that you know there's it's estimated that he made around 400 films um with a oh with 125 <laughs> of them being feature films uh but like 90% mm-hmm. of his body of work is completely lost so we can't really access it now So the big ones where he really got going were the modern musketeer that he did with Douglas Fairbanks. And he does so many Douglas Fairbanks films in in the time afterwards, working with him over and over again. And then he also does the film Zaza in 1923, which he does with Gloria Swanson, who is a very big star in the time period. But he continues making films, and one of his big, critical, critically acclaimed ones was Heidi in 1937, which I have seen. And then he does, ten years later, Sands of Iwo Jima, which, was a, which is still regarded as kind of a World War II classic. Mm-hmm. And then goes on to make The Most Dangerous Man Alive in 1961, which is still a very highly Jeez. regarded film. So this is 50 years of him making films and just all kinds of stuff. But once you had the transition over into the talking movies, you have the studio system is able to take hold in a lot, like a stranglehold on the business. And so he kind of gets pushed out because of that and is basically making B movies from that time going forward. So he has all these B movies and all these Westerns uh, and things like that. But there's this, there's a lot of people that look back at his, his, work as a director and see that it's he's the kind of guy that he just worked for forever and kept making films didn't matter if they were you know if they had great scripts or great actors associated with them but he elevates everything that he makes and so he's very highly regarded uh, because of that there's a huge following for alan Dwan in france uh france cinephiles have like they they love him so there's a lot about him but one of the big things one of the big changes he makes to cinema is he was he was an engineer he studied as an engineer and so he was really into like making bridges and buildings and aqueducts in particular anything with waterworks he loved making those kinds of things and so he brought that style to the films and his engineering prowess was what allowed him to kind of oversee the construction of these massive sets that were used in the Fairbanks swashbucklers. And so it's a perfect combination of these two things. And it really is kind of the invention of the idea of the big studio (laughs) set is from these two kind of working in collaboration.
0: Can you imagine if like Steven Spielberg or Christopher Nolan or Martin Scorsese like had to oversee the construction of their sets? (laughs) Right. That's it's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) i mean i i know it was just like how the job was then or also like he was creating what his job was because he had certain strengths but (laughs) yeah it's not something you think of as being in a director's skill set
1: yeah it's a it's it's incredible and you know it just the films wouldn't be the same without this and he was involved in he had brought on this young guy to work cameras this guy that mm-hmm. was just like on on set and he's like hey come work on this camera his name was victor fleming who went on uh, never heard of yeah him. went on to direct the wizard of oz which by a lot of estimates mm. is the most viewed movie of all time and i don't know has this huge impact on cinema but he doesn't get people don't know his name um a lot of the time so it's i don't know no, it's fascinating. i didn't
0: before we watched this uh
1: yeah. i didn't either you know i i had to go and learn about all this stuff but it's yeah it's
0: fascinating i know you have one more person but before we do that i do want to say this so people can stop sending us emails uh batman was 1939 i have no idea where i got the year 1922 from so I, that's okay I, i'm sorry i i just <laughs> i i had it wrong Sorry about that.
1: <laughs> no worries, no worries. So um, the other person to add on here is Arthur Edison, who is the cinematographer working on this one. And this is another one of those things that you go and look at him, and just a legendary career in in the film industry. So he's got he does Robin Hood in 1922. He had done some films before this though, so it it wasn't it wasn't his first film, and he had gotten gotten kind of brought on by by alan Dwan in some ways they were kind of working together but he goes on to do the thief of baghdad which is one of his big ones that he does with douglas fairbanks later but then also the 1931 frankenstein which is the iconic version of frankenstein that everybody thinks of with you know like the uh the nails in the head and the the green monster that was you know filmed in black and white but all of that and then he does The Maltese Falcon in 1941, and then Casablanca in 1942. Um, never heard of it. Yeah, which is one of my favorite films of all time and just has some of the greatest cinematography ever. But the progression of the cinematography from his through his career just kind of blew my mind. I never would have uh, guessed that this was filmed by Arthur Edison based on the camera work that goes on on Casablanca and it's just the change in the industry and the camera techniques and lighting and all the things that they could do and Arthur Edison brings this idea because he had done a lot of still photography beforehand and so he came in to the film industry and he's like you know what we could do is we could use lighting to kind of shape the images that we're putting on on the screen because everybody else just kind of did flat lighting behind before that and so in in hollywood he's one of the people that pushes this drive of using lighting which it is impossible to imagine lighting is like one of the big things in films that are made today and I, i don't know that people appreciate how important the lighting is to any film that is made it is one of the most important things that people think about when they're shooting a film is how to light things, what kind of fill to use, what kind of lights to use, and all of that kind of, those kind of questions. And it's Arthur Edison that is one of those people asking those questions in the beginning, and ends up being one of the founding members of the American Society of Cinematographers, which is another union that is still around.
0: I mean, it makes sense that people wouldn't spend a ton of time thinking about it. It's one of those things that... If you if you're ever thinking about the lighting in the film, something has gone horribly awry with the production. Like it's one of those things that it, yeah you it's better if you don't. The audience never thinks about it. Right,
1: right. <laughs> it's true, and it's just one of those invisible things. But it's so essential to the way that films are made. So I don't know. They, it was really interesting once I looked into these people to see the impact that they made. It's it's incredible how important this film was to the history of cinema because of that
0: yeah do did he have a lot of stuff before robin
1: hood he did he started in 1914 and he made like i don't know 40 okay. films before robin hood so including like the three musketeers and uh i don't know there's so many things all these old films i don't recognize the names for so i, I can't speak too much but he makes something like 110 films or something like that over the over his career, and so many of them are very highly regarded. One of the great cinematographers in film history.
0: Cool. Do you have anything else you want to say about any of our personnel here, or shall we... That's all I've got. All right. So, well, this is the section where if you're sitting down to watch this movie for the first time, we're going to just give you a little bit of advice or anything that we might think will aid in your first-time viewer, help make it a little bit of a better experience for you. And I know Matt pulled a lot of this, but the only thing that I wanted to say was you want to reframe your mind so that you're remembering that special effects don't exist. So anything that you're seeing in this film, somebody had to do. And And it was Douglas Fairbanks. yeah. And it and it was Douglas Fairbanks. I I was going to say like they either built the sets, but the majority of it is just stunts by Douglas Fairbanks. And I don't think I keyed into that until partway through the movie and then once I did it really changed how I was viewing everything because it was just like oh my goodness, like <laughs> how did they do this? How did humans do this?
1: So many of these stunts are so wild. It's uh, it's incredible. Uh, we'll talk about them when we get in, but it's... Uh, I have a hard time imagining a human being... Like, they would not let you do these kind of stunts on a film nowadays.
0: Oh, no. I was thinking about how this ha- must have been before like actor's equity because there's just no way it (laughs) It would not
1: it would never fly like he just doing these stunts without wires or anything he's just i'm gonna go you know do this thing it's it's wild it's so wild i mean the chances that he could have died on any of these stunts are high if he just messes up a little bit so it's wild yeah
0: and then you and i had uh well you and i had the same experience for the first like half of the movie, but then you had a very different experience for the back half of the movie, right?
1: Yeah, so the the music on this one... Uh, this, this I think, will help people's experience a lot, but the music on the Amazon Prime version of this film and a lot of the YouTube versions that are also available out there to watch, so there's different places to watch this, and they all have different sound going with them. So a little bit of perspective on the way silent movies work is that silent movies were never silent, if when you went into the theater there was always music going on with these films when you went if you went to go watch this one at Gramman's theater you had an orchestra playing in the pit while the film was going and there was music that was written for this that has been lost to time and we don't know what it looked like we don't know what it sounded like but if you were going into like a small theater in some other place what usually happened is there was somebody there playing the piano during through the entire film so there was just live music being played with it and the music that plays over the top of the film on Amazon Prime is a bunch of old Joplin ragtime music. Mm-hmm. I think The Entertainer plays three times during the course of the film.
0: I only noticed The Entertainer twice, but the, the one that's playing at the opening of the film I think happens five or six times, which is one that yeah. I recognize, but I don't know the name.
1: I only remember, it might only have been twice, but I, I only it showed up on the subtitles and it's like the entertainer is the only song that had a title when it would uh, show up on the Mm -hmm. subtitles, including the scene where, you know, there's like torture scenes that has the entertainer playing over the top of it. And it's, it's a really weird experience when you're sitting and watching it. it. It's,
0: it's very jarring. When I was rewatching scenes before the podcast, I, I actually just took my, Normally I rewatch on my phone because it's a lot easier to like fast forward and rewind and stuff. And I just took my headphones off because it was a much better experience with no sound than it was with the these superimposed rags. They just don't fit the, the context of the film at all. They really do not.
1: And if you're watching it with this this music, it's going to give you the feeling that it's like supposed to be a comedic performance in some way. And it's not intended to be at all. So what I did that was a different experience than what Zach did is about 30 minutes in, I just turned, I just muted my TV and I put in my headphones and opened up Spotify. And I just played the soundtrack from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves while I watched the film. And the way that it elevated the film that I was watching was in, the difference was astronomical. I I highly recommend doing something to this effect while you go watch it. And it is a little bit of work to like flip through songs and try to choose one that fits a little bit better for the scene that you're watching. But literally, it doesn't matter what song off that soundtrack is playing. It's going to be better than the the Joplin Ragtime uh, songs that are that are playing over the top of it. And there were situations where it was uncanny how well the song fit what was playing on the screen and the emotion that it created you I felt so much more pathos throughout this entire film because of that change in the music that I was listening to
0: you had a real uh, dark you made your own dark side of oz
1: for sure yeah it it was yeah. it was a fun little experience i wish i could go through honestly i wish i could go and just like rescore the film with a bunch of just pick different songs to play as as temp tracks over over this and, you know, create kind of an experience, but it would just be too much work to try and figure that all out.
0: Yeah, what what's kind of frustrating is there are two scores that have been written, I think, both in the last 30 years for this movie. Like, they just commissioned someone to write new ones, but it has to just be a rights issue for the reason that Amazon isn't able to have it with yeah. the film. So, well, said it's just right. Part of
1: the problem is that when these people write these scores over the top of silent films, the way that they make their money back is playing it is playing them in concerts. So you go and sit in a concert and the film plays mm-hmm. while they play it. And that is a lot harder to make your money off of if if it's available on streaming, so I imagine that they just aren't the rights aren't really available for that. So I I really wish that it, I really wish that it would, but I think people just
0: make a big difference yeah yeah
1: my frustration though i think they whoever put the songs on this one i just gotta say like it it feels like they did not care they just were putting whatever was on onto the track and i don't know i don't want to judge the job that somebody was doing but i feel like amazon had to have been able to find songs that they had the rights to that were a better suit than like the entertainer in in the scenes
0: yeah, and at the very least, they could have. If you keep the origin, the film, the sound that's on Amazon, it has a lot of breaks as yeah. well from presumably whatever restoration they did. So I don't think it was someone at Amazon who did this. I think it 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 came like this for sure. But yeah, that's true. Then it is a little then it is a little strange not to just go like go find. <laughs> better versions of these rags like the scott joplin stuff i'm pretty sure is all public domain at this point it's just yeah. a question of finding recordings that are also public domain right or you know buy out a piano player and get them to record it for 300 bucks or whatever
1: yeah so the other thing i wanted to add for watching this you have the title cards that come up which is where the words of the film come on but one misconception that people have about silent films is the, the idea of title cards of being sort of like subtitles. But at the time period, a lot of the audience that would go see films couldn't really read. So Mm. what they would do is they would have live performers in the theater that would read the title cards and act them out. So you'd have somebody that would read out in a dramatic reading, the lines that are presented there. And you know, When I watch silent films and I see the title cards come out, I read them out because there's a different feeling when you, when you have, I don't know, when you have that experience, when you're, when you're vocalizing the words that are, that are there when i'm watching it with other people a lot of times it's it's a different kind of experience because we're not sitting and watching it in the same kind of silence we would another film we're discussing what's going on on the screen and like talking back and forth with each other and then reading out the title cards and all of those things as the film is going on and i think that contributes to the experience
0: yeah and i'd say go even a step further you know we're coming out of a pandemic and there's a lot of actors out there who need work so i'd just go find some and <laughs> say what's your hourly rate and then hire them to come read the title cards that would be amazing
1: that would that would be awesome so i i am down for this the last thing that i wanted to add just for silent film is that the these films are restorations of old film and so there's a lot of artifacts in the film that make it look like a lower quality but that's not original to the film those things are those are a result of pulling out film that had degraded and decomposed over decades and trying to make something work out of this so it's just important to keep that in mind as you watch
0: Yep, those are (laughs) heroes doing yeoman's work yes to restore there is there is no money money there so that is just you know presumably people do get paid for their work but it is not people aren't making their money back amazon isn't making their money back if they pay someone to do that right and i don't think amazon restored this but you you, you got what I mean. yes, totally understand. but i I do hope that people give this a shot and at least watch some of this movie. I'd, I'd imagine some amount of people bounce off of bounce off of it. but I guess I will say I do hope people watch the entire movie because I I think it's kind of fun to do it. but if you do watch the beginning and then you want to bounce off of it, maybe jump forward and watch the last 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. I, th- I think that's definitely worth it. Uh, I,
1: I would agree. Like jump forward into some of these big action sequences instead of all of the, you know, party and jousting scenes that are earlier on in the film.
0: Yeah. And if you, if you do do that, Write us and let us know how that experience was just watching the last 20 minutes cold. Because obviously we watched the whole movie, so we don't know. And it would be nice to know. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's take a break and we'll be back with spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers. going to talk about spoilers so if you don't want to be spoiled for this uh extremely recent movie um you know spoilers are just all over twitter uh turn your podcast off now uh manny how did you how did you find this movie
1: it was it was good i really enjoyed watching this one i don't think it would have been my favorite film experience if i was just watching it for you know just for fun but as a historical artifact for the podcast and thinking of things to say with it I really enjoyed watching it
0: yeah I think I would would say the same it's not you know after I watched it I wasn't like I I pulled up a few gifs of stunts to show to show Mare but I wasn't like oh my goodness we have to we're, we're gonna go again you know <laughs> <laughs> we, got, we gotta watch this bad boy and I don't know, when I was rewatching specific scenes for the podcast tonight, I really enjoyed those, but I don't, because of how long the front half of this movie is, which I think is something that, like, probably was a really big deal, because it really just made it feel more epic for the time, but it, it does make it a little hard to get through. Like, Robin Hood doesn't show up for what 70 70 minutes of the movie which is quite the choice <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's a it takes a while to get started and additionally uh, some of these scenes are just it seems like since they built the set and had all the costumes they're like you know what we're just gonna keep filming this scene because why not just show show all of this
0: yeah yeah So, but I... We got it, so we have to use that. I
1: I do think, compared to the other films that I watched from the time period, I had it kind of in the middle. The only film that I would really want to go back and watch from 1922 was Nosferatu, the Dracula film, which, that one I highly recommend to people just to watch for fun. It's a, that film holds up really well. Uh, But this one, as far as a historical artifact, seeing Douglas Fairbanks and... His performance and the context of watching it, that I enjoyed a lot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad I watched it. What? Just out of curiosity, what are the other three films from 1922
1: that you did? So Nosferatu, Hacksan, which is a really interesting one. That's uh, like it's kind of of academic interest mostly, but I described it as being the world's first PowerPoint. yeah and so but it has i'll keep
0: you up at night it has
1: sort of like a film storyline in the middle somewhere i don't know it's it's basically like a presentation you'd get at school uh and then this one and i also watched sherlock holmes which was with john barrymore and it was not good that film talk about one that drags that one was a lot (laughs) and then i watched buster keaton's cop cops which does not drag but it's only 30 minutes long and it is high-paced and frantic and basically doesn't have a storyline is just high-paced frantic action scenes through the entire thing so it's hard to judge that as like a story because there just isn't anything to it Uh, but it's worth a watch to go check out Buster Keaton's cops as well
0: yeah I was watching some clips of some of the stuff that he did and it at least the clips that I saw it's very different style from what Douglas Fairbanks did but equally as impressive just like Oh, they how how many takes did it take for them to catch this stuff on camera? You know, yeah,
1: yeah, it's uh, incredible. Performers, just the kinds of things they're able to pull off without without the special effects work. It's uh, I don't know, it's incredible. It really is. It, just to think of it from that perspective,
0: it's really a very different skill set from. Maybe this is extremely obvious, but such a different skill set from a modern actor or actress, right?
1: Uh, it's the kind of thing that you're going to see is like stunt videos on YouTube is yeah, kind of a exactly. better comparison. So, yeah, but with like a Hollywood production budget and, you know, something of a storyline patching all of these things together.
0: Yeah, and I don't think... Maybe, maybe we'll get corrections if I'm wrong, but I don't think they had YouTube back in 1922. Uh,
1: yeah, I think that's accurate. So let us know yeah, in the... I think was
0: at least another decades. Let us know in the... Another couple decades. Let us
1: know in the comments for sure.
0: For sure. Uh, let's talk about the first scene that we have here. So we've got a, another weird order where it's a Zack scene, a Zack scene, and then a Matt scene, and a Matt scene. But the first scene that I wanted to talk about is this opening jousting sequence and all the way through to Douglas Fairbanks jumping in the lake. And I think there's a lot of things that are really interesting about this. The The first thing that I clued into was I was, like, very curious how they were going to do the jousting. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I didn't. I caught. So the way they do it is they have a shot. At least I'm pretty sure this is how they do it is they have a couple shots of the horses running at each other. And then there's a very quick camera cut for the collision. And then the collision happens. And then there's a cut after that where they show the horses like running away from each other at speed. And so my assumption here is like, that collision shot is just a collision shot where they're not moving and so that's how they were able to do it safely and on my first viewing i i i caught that the camera was cutting but i my brain still wasn't able to process why they had cut or what exactly that had done all i noticed was that it was a weird jump that wouldn't have happened in a modern film and I maybe even only noticed that because I was specifically looking to see how they did the jousting sequence. So I, I think that part was pretty skillfully edited for what they, what they had for the time. Like it definitely worked on my brain, even if it didn't work on my emotions.
1: Yeah. It's well, editing was kind of in its heyday at this time period. People were figuring out How to do those edits. And it's a wild thing to think about that they just didn't know how to edit films to make this kind of thing appear until D.W. Mm -hmm. Griffith kind of comes up with the idea of splicing together the edits in these ways and uh, creating this (laughs) sequence of events. And then Alan Duan is one of those people that kind of builds on the idea, uh, what they call in the film business, montage or the editing of scenes together in order to create the story and sequence. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they do some clever stuff. But at, at the same time, Douglas Fairbanks was just known for being an incredible horseman. And so a lot of the horsework that's happening on camera is just him just being incredible and just riding the horse incredibly well
0: yeah that's the other thing is you get to see some some real horse riding here but he can't ride both the horses so someone else had to ride that other horse yeah
1: you know? a guy of Gisborne however uh, whoever the actor was for that but whew, it'd be intimidating going up against well Douglas Fairbanks in this
0: that could have been that could have been a sunk guy I don't know for sure I know that Douglas Fairbanks did his own stunts which we'll talk about a little bit later some a fun story for that, but that doesn't mean that all of the other actors did their own stuff for it. Yeah, that's true. There, one of the things that I really liked about this is the before the jousting sequence happens, the um, what's the bad the bad knight's name? Guy Chris of Gisborne. Bane? Gisborne. Yeah. There's a scene of him locking himself into his saddle or fastening himself in there cheating and cheating Yeah, yeah yeah and this is definitely something that you could totally tell through cinematic like you could tell just through camera work because it's all physical action there's no dialogue required but they still added a little title card that explains what he's doing and why they're like Yo, he's cheating, he's securing himself to the saddle. And personally I really appreciated that because I wish I wish modern movies did that sometimes because sometimes directors aren't as good as they think they are and what they want people to get out of sequences is not necessarily what this dummy over here gets. So
1: basically someone pauses the film and reads out the title card. Now what's going on yeah. is he's cheating right now. Huh? Ah, <laughs> right. Uh, continue the film.
0: Yeah, yeah. We needed we needed Ridley Scott to do that for the for the rain section in Alien. That I was curious about before. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Uh, one of the other things that I loved about this sequence
1: is there's like I don't even know, impossible to count, but something like a thousand extras on the set. Oh my gosh, it's so many humans, and they're just in so much, such elaborate costumes. Like these costumes, they they called these at the time period costume dramas because of all the costumes that were involved with this and just gorgeous, amazing costumes that all these people are, are crammed into. Uh, and then the the one costumes that, that... All the costumes look fabulous to me through the entire movie except for the helmets that the knights wear, which, you know... <laughs> they're so funny. They're, they're very funny looking and just, you know, look like buckets <clears throat> with holes poked in them. But, you know, they they they
0: got it done. I suppose they did, Yeah. There's also, oh, so there is a pretty funny shot in this scene where, and I hadn't quite keyed into this on my first watch, but it's when he's talking to, he's gotten bullied into talking to, um, what's her name? Lady Marion. Lady Marion, yeah. I kept wanting to say Miriam, but definitely not Miriam. That, that would um, be a
1: different story for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there were any Jews in this one. So (laughs) it was completely, completely Jewless. The But so he's talking to her on the podium and then she sort of walks towards him and he backs away. And there's this really cool shot of him, like, back falling down the stairs. Yeah. And because I hadn't, like, clued into the fact that he was doing all his own stunts yet, it wasn't something that seemed cool to me at the time. But I I, I'd imagine if you were watching it in 1922, that's not something that you have to worry about because you, you know, <laughs> digital effects didn't exist yet, and it really just shows off his fleet-footedness and how much control he has of his body, and especially because it's going to take a good amount of time for this movie to to really take off. You got to have a few of those little things here at the beginning.
1: For sure. Yeah. Showing off Douglas Fairbanks athleticism. I did find it fascinating that the way they portrayed him as
0: like really scared of women. Um, Yeah. I was going to ask you what that was the next thing on my list was to ask you what you made of this. Like, why did they do this? I don't know. Um, It's,
1: it's a really interesting choice. I know in the time period, the way that people thought of sexuality was evolving and changing, and then there's a major step backwards in the 30s. And right. so I, I wonder if maybe some of that perspective is going in there. But both Douglas Fairbanks and Alan Dwan, their films have a lot of this come up of characters of that are basically like... Afraid of romance or afraid of women or just kind of avoiding romantic relationships. And so, I don't know, it's a really interesting thing. I don't have a lot of thoughts on what it's representing, but I found it a curious part of the film.
0: Yeah, and we should say, because I don't know, I think this movie might have some amount of people who carry on to the back half without watching it. So there's two things that happen in this scene. One of them is he goes to get awarded his prize... And he says to the king, like, basically, please don't make me go. I'm afeard of women. Yeah. After he's just, you know, won a jousting match. And then the king basically, like, laughs and makes him do it. And then somehow just throngs of women start chasing after Douglas Fairbanks. And there's these pretty cool shots of him, like, running and everybody running after him. And then he eventually goes and jumps in a lake and they can't follow him, and then the button on the scene is, he swims away and then surfaces, and where he surfaces, there's a, another woman like washing something in the river or whatever, and he says, ah, another woman, and then he disappears below the water again, and there's a blackout. And it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty funny.
1: And it's an interesting choice, a bold
0: choice. <laughs> it, it, it's definitely a bold choice. Yeah, the only thing I could come up with was that it was really trying to contrast him with, like, your idea of what a normal jouster would be or a normal, like, knight at the time who would maybe be a womanizer or... And really trying... Like, this was... This is, like, a huge virtue, was my idea of what the movie was trying to... The point of view the movie was, like, trying to sell, or maybe that was something... It didn't sell that very well, which is why I thought maybe that would have been like an understood point of view at the time that just like not sleeping with all the women that you can was made him like the hero.
1: It's possible. Yeah, it's well. And also because of the film, the way it kind of starts off with the sequence before the title is talking about, you know, the ancient knights and the chivalry that was there at the time period. And that's part mm-hmm. of the code of knightly chivalry at the time period. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if they were calling on that at some point. But again, I don't I don't understand this scene well enough to to I haven't been able to figure out what it's going for here. It is curious because, you know, Douglas Fairbanks is known for sleeping around a little bit before this time period. So it definitely doesn't reflect much of Douglas Fairbanks as a person. And, I don't know, it's it's a fascinating moment in the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more chivalrous than being scared of half a little over half of the world's population. <laughs> so, I guess that makes sense. Uh,
1: for sure, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know, women, I guess, are terrifying. He's able to fight off hordes of soldiers and do these incredible feats of, you know, fantastic athleticism. But, a woman... Uh, he can't handle that. But one of the things uh, along with that that does create an interesting contrast is when he does meet Marion, and they and he later goes with Marion up to the balcony, and there's this kind of like sweet point where she like draws a silhouette on the wall, mm-hmm. and I I that one kind of got me. I like that, and. It it creates a contrast with the way that he's reacting to these other characters. We can tell that this is a genuine interest that he has in Lady Marion. And it also contrasts with the character of Guy of Gisborne and Prince John, who are, I mean, they're essentially rapists throughout this film. Yeah. And that's like one of their major goals is to rape a bunch <laughs> of women throughout this throughout the story. So I think there's a little bit of a, a foil kind of character dynamic going on.
0: Uh, Yeah, that that makes sense. I actually was, like, wondering if there was... Until that scene happened with Marion where they sort of fell in love, I was like, oh, does this... Does this movie have some sort of, like, weird gay undertones that everyone knows about and, like, that's a reason that it's famous and... That was that was something they were going because I didn't know anything about Douglas Fairbanks when I was watching it. I was like, "That's what I was trying to figure out too." Erotic stuff. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was thinking the same thing, and that's what I was trying to figure out. But as far as I could tell, there's there's not a lot of a lot of discussion of that. But it, I had the feeling that there was some some amount of gay undertones
0: with the film. So I don't know because that would be very. That is very the reason I thought that might be true is that is very common for the Arthurian legend. Yeah. With between like the idea of the thruple between Arthur Lancelot and Guinevere. Guinevere, yeah. Anyway, so Oh, and I did see that that bird that they got. Um They did get a live bird, and it did cost them two hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, obviously, it's a live bird, but they had to they had to get it flown in. It was an expensive bird. Yeah, two hundred and fifty dollars. That's
1: what, like, uh, like five grand now, something like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, I was gonna say, why don't you talk about our next scene? But the next scene is me, and this is more of a short scene, but I. I wanted to talk about when Prince John takes over and basically the movie goes through such great pains to show you how much he sucks. Oh my gosh, he sucks
1: so bad. And it's like in so many ways, it's just like, uh, I don't know how long it was, but it felt like 15
0: minutes or something of just, this is how evil Prince John is. It's a little shorter than that, but then there are later scenes where it it comes back. And so, yeah, the establishing shot right after he takes over, it shows him, like, there's a title card where it talks about him raising taxes, and then it's like, but if people couldn't pay their taxes, then he gets to just take all their stuff and then it shows him taking all their stuff, although it isn't really clear in any of those shots that that's exactly what's happening. I think that's a little strange. But then it goes on and shows a couple torture scenes, which is like, whoa! <laughs> and, the, and the torture scenes—they're graphic. Are they're pretty grisly. The the first one, oh. Tay heard me talking about torture and she just came in. (laughs) The first one is like this guy hanging from chains and then they take, I think it's supposed to be like a brand and basically shove it onto his neck because it just shows this guy hanging from chains and then a metal rod getting lowered towards his neck and then just steam starts coming out from, from above him. Or from, like, above his head. And then the second one they showed was... And this is the only other one in this sequence. Was... (laughs) It shows a woman getting punished for spurning Prince John's advances. And it's just, like... This very close to naked woman just getting whipped mercilessly. And... Yeah. It. I was. I was pretty surprised that that was something that they were willing to show on. On film at the time. Yeah, this but, is
1: pre-Hays Code, and the Hays Code is the the rules that go into uh, into place that prevent you from showing different kinds of things. And I'm sure that God so ahead. much of this film would have been, <laughs> uh, you know, would not have passed the Hays Code.
0: Yeah. So th- those are those, and then it's not part of this scene, but it does happen later. Is there's. An entire scene of them torturing this woman by like clamping her hand to the table. Oh, and yeah. then it's not... It wasn't exactly clear to me what it was they were pouring on her. But it was either like some hot wax or some hot oil. And uh, they they don't show the pouring. So they, they do cut away from for that. But they show her face while it's supposedly getting poured onto her hand. And again, there's just steam coming up. And it's, oh man, it, it is gruesome.
1: Yeah. While well, the entertainer plays in the background. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> I don't know if it was exactly the entertainer, but it's, the same it's vibe. definitely jaunty. Yeah, it's a, it's, in, it's a little jaunty. And in the former, you might not have watched this far with the with the audio, but there is like a rag that has tap dance in the background, <laughs> oh, which is extremely strange. That sounds distracting. Yeah, by the by the time I got to this point, I was listening
1: to you know this uh, this track that is full of terror, is you know playing into this and like. I felt a lot of pathos from this one. Like it, it was very unsettling to me. The music matched up with what I was watching. <laughs> um, the other thing that I thought as I was watching this is that this was the second film from this the, from this year, 1922, that featured extended torture sequences, which. Oh, yeah, really? the film Hacksan. Let me tell you, there's like 30 minutes of just torture, and not only do, not only that, but they go through like each of the implements to discuss how they were used in part of this thing. So, and they go through like 30 different pieces of uh, of torture instruments, um, and they're showing you know people getting tortured for not denying being witches and all of that kind of thing. So, I don't know.
0: It's it was weird. They they were into torture at this time period, apparently. Yeah, I guess so woohoo, I'm going to go watch those 30 minutes of Hacks <laughs> that. sounds awesome. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. That was that was all I really wanted to say about this scene. So unless you have something else, we can move on to your scene. That's scenes. all
1: I've got. The next scene that I wanted to talk about was there's this fascinating thing that they do where King Richard, he goes on the crusade, which is the standard part of the Robin Hood mythos. And Robin Hood goes and travels with him. And they have this big... It shows the big camp with, like, a castle that they camp out at, at in France. And Robin Hood gets the message from Lady Marion that Prince John is taking over and torturing people and, you know, all, all of these kinds of things. And he decides he's trying to going to try to get to go home. And then he goes and talks to King Richard, and King Richard thinks he's being a coward and a deserter. So he has him locked up in this, in this prison along with his squire little John. They both get locked up in different prison cells. Um and then of uh, this you have some cuts between different things as this is going, but eventually we cut back mm-hmm. and we see this moment where uh little John kind of gets the guard to come over and then reaches through the window, chokes the guy out and grabs the keys, unlocks himself, and then goes and lets Robin out of the castle. But what I found really fascinating, for one thing, the, the set that they built for this castle in the middle of france you know somewhere is pretty incredible for something that was used for such a short period of time like they they have kind of a big set for this but then the other thing that i found fascinating was to put this in the context of all these people going off to this war in europe about you know four years after the end of world war one and the u.s involvement in world war one and when people would have gone off to europe and so there's a little bit of like a political metaphor kind of allegory that's going on here because you have these people that go off to europe during world war one and the uh, u.s involvement in it and you have sort of these rich entrepreneurs kind of taking over the politics of things back in the mainland United States while this is going on and kind of using the, the opportunism of war in order to do this and then pushing forward these horribly inequitable um, economic situations here in the United States and using the war kind of as the, the excuse or opportunity to do that. And so I wondered how much of that was a deliberate statement in reflection on those events. Yeah,
0: very possible. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know enough of how Douglas Fairbanks, like, political views or how, how, how much he wanted to be reflecting that in his movies to know for sure. But it seems pretty likely to me.
1: Yeah, it's hard to tell with everybody else involved as well because it's just it's hard to pin down whatever politics they may
0: have had i don't know yeah but even i mean even if it's not wasn't supposed to be explicit or wasn't conscious i mean subconscious stuff the subconscious is very powerful right Right. what unrelated to that what is so the one who bends the bars that like, bends the bars and chokes the guard out, you said that's not Douglas Fairbanks?
1: I don't... I can't remember for sure. I may be wrong about that, but I thought that was the character that's playing the Squire, which is Little John.
0: So... Yeah, okay. I mean, I can't. I just couldn't tell them apart, so I only am able to use, like, context clues. Like, because they both have a mustache, right? They both
1: have a mustache, but the guy that's playing... The guy that's playing, um uh little john is blonde in this film hmm.
0: but it's in black and white so yep just lighter colored hair anyway i don't know it's it's hard we, to tell we, we don't have to spend a lot of time on the <laughs> trials of watching a silent movie with a fantasia but yeah the <laughs> that, it's definitely an issue i rely so much on the sound of people's voices to be able to recognize recognize them but I do feel a little better knowing that you're not now you're not a 100% sure which one was which in this scene
1: I wasn't a 100% sure when I said it but I just uh, I spoke with confidence and was hoping that you mm. know I was hoping that you just believe me but there it goes <laughs> okay well
0: I was gonna believe you and just say this is how this is how it works for me but then you outed yourself so. there it
1: goes that's okay no worries I,
0: I did think this was a pretty pretty fun little action scene to kick off basically the the back half of the movie here with them getting to escape escape the tower and, and found it relatively believable once you get past the fact that you know the iron bars got got bent to be fair it is little John and he's known for his prodigious strength so oh is that true
1: yeah I mean it may have been Robin Hood that did it though in which case I don't know if we can believe it but uh who knows right
0: yeah but is it have i been saying the wrong name is it really little john and prince john
1: there is little john and prince john
0: yes you're that is oh, that that is the
1: you know what that comes from the oldest oldest versions of robin hood the you know all those myths span back uh, hundreds of years
0: that's horrific you'd think there would have been like an innovation sometime like an, another name a new name yeah well you know
1: they didn't have like editors and stuff to, to check them on that and i think little john is such a beloved character that you just can't you just can't change it yeah
0: well i thought maybe they just didn't have any more names they'd run out this
1: is early england you know that's not that's not entirely wrong
0: do you have anything else you want to say about the escape scene
1: um I, oh the just one last thing is before the escape scene there's this there's this scene where you know there's a carrier pigeon or some kind of bird yeah i had this in cleanup but yeah we can talk about it here and they just send a falcon up to kill it and get the message back i don't know how bad hurt, or hurt badly hurt that bird may have been or not but i don't know it seemed pretty gruesome and um i don't know i felt bad for the poor bird this was before the day where yeah. you would have in the credits no animals were harmed in this production and so i started to wonder if maybe there were animals harmed in this production
0: yeah so you i i you think they just that just was real. There was no... Yeah, I don't know. It looked real. Yeah, it looked pretty real. This was another point where I had to play a little bit of catch up here. I guess I'm still not entirely clear who all of the people were at, at that point and where. Like, I was sort of able to piece it together through context clues that the good guys were trying to send a carrier pigeon back and then the bad guys released a Falcon. So I hadn't. the
1: guy that's working, the agent that's working for Prince John is the knight guy yeah. of Gisborne who went on the tra- went on the trip, who is the guy that, uh, Robin was jousting with in the beginning. Um, he's also the guy mm-hmm. that was trying to get lady Marion's attention. And then Robin kind of like fought him off a little bit and, uh, got her away from him. And so they already had, you know, like, stuff between them before they send up this this to kill this message with the, with the hawk.
0: Yeah. So that that's all stuff that I was able able to figure out like after the scene because I'm able to piece together ret- retroactively what the story was supposed to be. Right. Anyway, that's probably not not too thrilling of content. Let's talk about your last scene here, which <laughs> for contrast is pretty thrilling.
1: Yeah, so there's there's kind of two scenes that I was thinking of and I just kind of wanted to smash them together. But it's when Robin goes yeah. back, to, back to England and he infiltrates the castle. And this scene is very worth watching. Um, mm-hmm. And so you have this extended action sequence on this massive set. And Robin's going into... It wasn't clear to me exactly what he's doing when he goes into the castle, what he's trying to find out, or what he's trying to steal. But he goes into the castle, he's kind of sneaking around a little bit, and then he does get spotted by some of Prince John's goons. And it's incredible because you see this thing, this background, and it's this huge tower with this giant staircase, and these these curtains that come down and then this bridge over Mm -hmm. the top when i first saw it i was like oh that's a cool matte painting that they did in the background and then (laughs) they're continuing with the scene and he runs up the stairs and i was like oh wow really so they they built that whole tower and then he runs in the tower and runs across this bridge over to the other part, and it's just an entire set that they built. And I remember watching it as as it was going, in and thought, who you know, it'd be hilarious if if he, you know, if he slid down that those curtains or something." So he gets chased by I don't know, like a hundred soldiers, something like that. It's a lot. Chasing him through all this area. And they're all like crowding up the stairs chasing after him. And he's running back and forth. And then he does exactly this. He runs over, jumps, and uh, slides down the these curtains in order to get past him. Um, there's a bunch of other shenanigans that happen with him jumping in and out of windows. And hiding behind other curtains. And fighting a guy next to the vines. And his picture is drawn behind it. Um, and then eventually escaping on a boat I think is what happened there but just the swashbuckling antics of this of this part of the film are incredible and you see the range of douglas fairbanks's athleticism in this sequence
0: yeah i think it's maybe the final like 17 minutes of the film if you started around there you'll uh get this full action sequence but the whole thing starts off with this sequence where he there's a drawbridge as you said are uh what was his name alan duan mm-hmm. yeah alan Dwan loves his bridges they, they have this yeah they have this functioning drawbridge and like they see robin hood riding up and they sound the alarm and the drawbridge starts going up and they have a shot of him running jumping onto the drawbridge As it's, I don't know, what, maybe four to five feet off the ground, uh, but still going up. And so by the time he pulls himself up onto the drawbridge, it's maybe 10 to 15 feet off the ground and is going to... You're not going to be able to stand on the drawbridge for very much longer. And he ends up grabbing one of the chains, shimmying up the chain to... A little landing up there where he grabs hold and then dodges an arrow and it hits the guard who's there and he pulls himself to safety. And when I saw this scene, I was just like bowled over. I was like, how in the world did they mock this up? And it turns out Douglas Fairbanks had hurt himself filming a movie a couple years earlier and so the studio um or the i guess he owned the studio so i'm not 100% sure who it was but well he jo- he joint owns the studio so he joint
1: owns yeah the but studio. it's administered okay. by by other folks so there's like you know uh, people that manage the money and the lawyers and all that stuff that have some say over what he can do and can't do
0: yeah so they were like yeah this stunt is too dangerous you can you're our money maker, and you cannot do this stunt. And he was like, "No, I do all my own stunts." And they were like, "No, you can't do it." And he was like, "Okay, I guess we can get a stunt double." And then the stunt double filmed it. And after they got the shot, he revealed that he was actually the stunt double the whole time. And he was like, "Ha, I did it." He disguised
1: himself as his own stunt double in
0: order to do in yeah. order to do the shot. In order to do the shot, it is such a cool sequence i this was one of the gifs that i showed mayor after after i watched and it's just like she was like yeah (laughs) actor's equity would not let you do that (laughs) no definitely not
1: (laughs) but there's a lot of stunts that are that have this kind of feel throughout this section it's i just cannot emphasize enough how much it's worth watching just like these portions the swashbuckling and stunts portions of this film because they are audacious and bold and like terrifying uh, this this wall that he goes down the curtain on it's not short it's like 40 or 50 feet tall and he just yeah slides down the curtain like like it's a, a slide at a
0: water park <laughs> it's pretty it cool. is uh, <laughs> And, uh, yeah so cool and there's one there's one scene i mean they it must have been safer than it looks but it sure maybe not i have no idea it sure looks like he jumps off of a ledge that's at least 15 to 20 feet and then clears a gap of what at least oh my gosh. six or seven feet and just grabs whatever it is that he grabs on the other e- edge and then catches himself on yeah. ostensibly ivy and then shimmies up the wall to get into the the parapet at the top.
1: Yeah. So to help get, you know assuage you in your in your terror at that scene, there was a net underneath of it, and there's photos photographs of the net. So if he fell,
0: okay. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. The,
1: the net is like 35 feet below. So mm-hmm. um, I'm looking at a picture of it right now, and it is. Listen, that is not a big net, and it is a ways down below, and that, that is not safe. Um, you should not try that at home because, I mean, if you miss, that's you're breaking something, even with the net there.
0: Oh man. Anyway, yeah, I love this. I love this. This whole sequence. It. It kind. Of, I mean, I think that's the point of the movie. I think it's like. Everybody knows what's coming and they're, you know, we're going to pay it off with 30 minutes of a climax. And, you know, does it hold up against the matrix's climax? I guess not, but I don't know. It's pretty darn good. And
1: all the, you know, all the storming of the castle and uh, shooting the arrows. And I don't know uh, the, the climax of this scene where he's, Oh, what is happening to him? He's being held captive by a guy with, like, a knife. um, And they're all trying to get the... uh, The Merry Men are trying to get there fast enough so that they can stop him from being executed. Yeah. It's a pretty tense scene as you're worrying about whether they'll make it in time. And a lot of, you know, great sword work as well in the fights.
0: The sword work's good, yeah. it's good stuff. I don't... Do you have any conception how they did all of the arrows? I don't know. I I was
1: wondering that as well because there's a lot of... It has to be a lot of editing work that they're doing with the arrows because um, you don't see people fire people drawing the arrow and then loosing it and then the shot carrying from there over to where it's hitting. You're always seeing someone pulling it, loosing, and then you'll have like a cut, and then you'll see an arrow stab into whatever thing it is that they're doing. So it's possible that you have like a crossbow or something like that that's firing it. You don't really see the arrows making an arc to go land down, so that's why I'm leaning towards the crossbow thing, but I don't know for sure.
0: The crossbow is the only thing I could think, but there are still... A couple shots, particularly... So this is before the storming of the castle where they have maybe five to ten minutes of him doing his Robin Hood thing where he's, like, stopping corrupt people and actually taking from the rich and giving to the poor. But there was a couple shots in that sequence where the arrow flies not a short... Like, you have a full shot of seeing the arrow fly not a short distance and then impacting and sinking into whatever material it is we're supposed to think it's wood pretty close to another human yeah and so i guess i can only imagine they have as you said it's crossbow and it's set up mechanically and they can just test it several times and know exactly where the impact is going to be and then they make sure that people don't stand close to there but yeah Still seems pretty scary, I mean... Though we also have to entertain the possibility
1: that um, Douglas Fairbanks just fired all the arrows, also.
0: Well, no, so you said there was no shot where Douglas Fairbanks, where anyone... There's a continuous shot of an arrow, but there is one shot where Douglas Fairbanks does it, and there's no one... Like, he's not firing towards any humans, but it's the first time they show up in whatever their like secret Glenn Sherwood is, forest that in Sherwood forest that he shows up and he shoots an arrow and hits a hat. Yeah. it Like it, it's a remarkable shot. I have to imagine it. And it didn't look like there was any trickery or anything. Maybe there was, and I just missed it, but I, I think they just, he learned how to shoot arrows and they did enough takes until they got a clean shot of him hitting the, damn hat <laughs> i don't i don't know that he learned how to do it for this film because i think he had done some
1: bow work previ- I, th- I think that douglas CR fairbanks right is uh, was actually a good shot with the bow so yeah i, I think that <laughs> one probably is him just uh, saying listen i'm i'm playing robin hood i gotta shoot i gotta do a shot at some point and we just gotta show the whole thing so i did forget about that one that it looks like it does a continuous shot over there but it's it's hard to tell with these older films yeah.
0: sometimes. I was pretty sure it was. I was floored. It, maybe maybe we have a someone who's a real expert on, on these films and can let us know. That'd be great, yeah. I don't have anything else to say about this climax other than... Oh, no, I did want to ask you, how did you feel about the reveal of who the secret knight was at the end? I mean, I uh, 100% expected it, so... i I didn't find it surprising at all um it was it was so lame because there was the line before where he was like i might be the king i might not be (laughs) and it's like well i guess it's the king then
1: (laughs) where they have their sword fight in the forest between him and the between robin and the king and you're like i'm I'm pretty sure that's just king richard coming back um it was yeah yeah, and it's i don't know it's a little bit anticlimactic to have him there
0: but whatever i mean it's fine i just thought it was so funny they felt they had to put the plant line in 10 minutes before like would the movie have been would people have just been like (gasps) no way if you hadn't put that gun on the table people just riot this is too unbelievable i mean it's possible this was in the
1: early days so i don't know maybe
0: Anyway, that's all I have to say about the climax of the film. Sounds good. That's all I've got as well. I only have one thing for cleanup since we talked about the other one I had, which this extremely bizarre game that they're playing where in the front half of the film where I guess you're arm wrestling, but someone's holding a knife to your forehead
1: but you're arm wrestling with a goblet of uh of alcohol in between yeah
0: right oh yeah because they're trying to drink the goblet yes that's the game what kind of game is this is the idea like it didn't seem like you were to ever really be in danger of slicing your forehead open it's like you just don't move it forward is the idea that you're straining so hard, and it takes extra effort to keep your head static?
1: No, I just think it's so that you can't cheat by reaching your head forward to drink out of the goblet. Uh, oh.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: So. That makes sense. You, to be perfectly honest, though, you asked what kind of game is this, and uh, to me it seems like a really awesome game um (laughs) like i don't know that i'd want to have the knife to my throat uh or yeah to my to my head whatever it is but you know trying to like pull that drink towards you and get it close it's an interesting idea for an arm wrestle because you know you can't just get the other person down you got to pull it over and have it there long enough to drink the wine out of it i don't know great game design
0: well you heard it heard it here first this is Matthew Watkins is more interested in the alcohol (laughs) game than I am.
1: Well, I'd probably not put alcohol in it for myself, So, to be fair. No, the the rules are the rules. The rules are the rules, Uh, that's for sure. I was a little bit interested to see how, you know, in our rankings of the Stream It canon, how drunk this movie would be. It did definitely Mm -hmm. come in below Pete's Dragon, and, you know... Uh, There was a lot less drinking by the end than I thought there was going to be after the first 20 or so minutes with, uh, you know, a lot of drinking and a lot of drunken parties going on at the beginning. But I find that fascinating because it is during Prohibition where it was illegal to drink alcohol. And just the idea of going to this movie theater and watching all these people get, like, raucously (laughs) drunk and you're like, oh, yeah, I wish that was legal. Oh, those,
0: (laughs) those good old days in medieval England. They could
1: drink alcohol
0: so alcohol and the holy crusades what could be better yeah (laughs) the good old days so there you go that's all i've got for cleanup all right so that'll do it for robin hood if you next week so we were going to do i think we might have mentioned this on an earlier podcast so we were going to do 10 things i hate about wait right 10 things i hate about you Yeah, Um, We were going to do that, but that was removed from Amazon Prime before before we could get to it. So we've had to pull a little Audible here. And so instead we're going to do The Big Sick from 2017, which neither one of us have seen. But I think we're both pretty excited about that.
1: Yeah, it's been on my list of things to watch and then keeps getting bumped down by other stuff that takes some priority. So I'm excited to have a good excuse to sit down and watch it.
0: Yeah, and it'll be nice to... To get our rom com in for this season, and as always, uh, you can find we would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you thought of the show. We'd love to hear what you thought about this movie if you took a chance on it and how far you got in it and what you thought about it. You can send us an email at podcaststreamit at gmail or you can if you just want hey to say hate us, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Zvazda Z V A Z D A and you can find Matt at O R A Y M W. Yeah. And we would we would love some feedback, you know, we're still figuring out the structure of our of our third season here. So, if you like the new structure, let us know, and if you don't like the stru- the new structure, definitely let us know so that we can think about changing it up for the future. Yep. And of course, thank you to David Stewart for helping out with editing and for being our beta listener. And I think that's everything I have to say. I kind of messed up our order of this last week, and so now <laughs> I'm very self-conscious about the the outro of the podcast, but I think that's everything. So, what do you have a closing question for us?
1: I do. So one of the classic things here with the with Robin Hood is Robin Hood and the Merry uh, Band of Robbers, and all of them have you know like their uh, special skills. You've got Little John the the strength. You've got Will Scarlet the knife guy. You've got Friar Tuck the the you know the the priest with the staff and the alcohol. So mm-hmm. I'm curious if you were a member of Robin Hood's band of merry outlaws, uh, what would be your role within the within the organization?
0: Hmm. What what would I contribute to a band of outlaws? That's right.
1: Yes. I think.
0: Well, I'm kind of I'm kind of a scaredy cat, so it wouldn't be anything super action forward. So I think maybe I could be like uh maybe I'd be able to get good at sort of map making and strategic planning for infiltrating places and hopefully I'd develop a talent for like finding secret entrances or being able to figure out patterns of opposing who whoever we are trying to steal from so that it's like, at two thirty-three in the morning, there's going to be a changing of the guards, and that's when we got to get in and get the gold reserves. And here's the route we're going to use. To do. Oh, I love it!
1: That sounds great. Somebody's got to be
0: the uh, the guy in the chair, right? Yeah, yeah. That's a more aspirational because I don't know that it necessarily fits any of my strengths. It just doesn't exploit any of my weaknesses. It makes sense. So, uh, I I think I'd probably be a bad, a very bad Mary. Man.
1: Um, to be fair, you know, the, there's always a need for music in these in in Sherwood Forest as well. So, I don't know that they'd have a piano though. So, it might be a little bit tricky. No. So,
0: I, I can be the bard. Yeah. yeah, that's true. What about you? Uh,
1: I think probably my job. So. One of the classic things that you see in these Robin Hood films is all the wanted posters and then the merry men, like, taking down the wanted posters and putting up their own posters and all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd want to be the poster maker. I'll just, I will make posters that Robin Hood can go and, like, you know, put up wherever he puts up to cover up the wanted posters, making fun of Prince John and doing all of that stuff. You'll
0: be the Robin Hood propagandist. I will be the
1: propagandist. I will take the job. I Very can write young. posters denouncing rich people. It's a, it is within my skill set.
0: <laughs> I believe you. Okay, so this movie, the, the Robin Hood mythos, takes a turn when Prince John takes over and Prince John is a horrible ruler. And obviously Prince John doesn't really have any designs on being a good ruler, I don't think. He doesn't have any designs on being a good king. But I want to know if you became, you know, people don't train to be rulers. You don't get to go to king school to learn how to be the best king. So if you took over as king, like you just got thrust into ruler role, what would be, what do you think would be your biggest shortcoming as a king? What, what, is, what would be most likely to send the kingdom into disrepair?
1: Oh, oh dear. Oh, dear. The kingdom would quickly fall into dis, dis, uh, disrepair um, and just a complete mm-hmm. disaster. I don't think that I would make a good king at all. Um, I have no idea which of my many faults and foibles would be the cause of the <laughs> downfall. Um, you know, having ADHD I don't think is, like, particularly well-suited to ruling an entire country. Um, and so no, uh, the not. organizational skills, if I can hire somebody that's going to be in charge of all my schedule, that I'm sure would help out a lot. Probably also my disinterest in like you know killing people or taking poor people's money uh, would would mm-hmm. make me not so good at being the guy in charge of the these feudal systems at the time period. So I don't know. I I do a bad job at all of this.
0: Yeah, for me, um, I mean, this is a weird feudal system we're living in, but we're recording this on March. Twenty first, which means that tomorrow, of course, is March twenty second, which is Sondheim's birthday. And uh, if I were king, I would definitely institute Sondheim Day, and and the people would rejoice. Would rejoice. And, well, I mean, maybe the Sondheim fans <laughs> would, but I, I have to imagine there would be great dissent for people who are like, "Oh my God, we just have to listen to his entire discography for a whole day again." <laughs> it's so discordant this is garbage so i i think that would create a um makes sense a triad uprising you know with no no chord alterations
1: yeah makes sense uh uh we've established that both of us would make terrible rulers so you know you do what you
0: can do hire us (laughs) if you have a kingdom we'll come and run it for you we're ready for the (laughs) job We couldn't have been worse than Prince John, right? I'd torture a lot less people. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, unless forcing people to listen to Sondheim is considered torture, in which case I'd torture the entire kingdom. (laughs) Uh, Fair enough. Okay. I feel like this podcast went off the rails a little bit, but that will do it for this week, and we'll talk to you next week for a rom-com that will probably not go off the rails. Excellent. Very exciting. All right. Bye. Bye.